my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Import Cinema Club. And today, we're coming live from winter, it seems. <laughs> it's uh, snowy and haily in Toronto. It's April. It's the ice storm. It's April 15th, and there's nothing but snow outside. It's terrible. I walked here with uh, pellets of hail hitting my face. <laughs> this is a filmmaker that was recommended by a contest winner, and she wanted us to do it, so we did. And it's a filmmaker that... I actually had a lot of fondness for because when I was in high school, films like Velvet Goldmine came out and they were pictures that were very energetic and there was a lot going on. And while I enjoyed watching them, he wasn't someone that I followed a lot. Like I wasn't obsessed with him by any stretch of the imagination. I have virtually no relationship with the films of Todd Haynes. I've seen some of them, you know. Haven't thought much about them at all. But he is a filmmaker that he's doing something that me and you love, which is creating pastiches mm-hmm. of things that have influenced him and seemingly trying to kind of recontextualize them in ways that they weren't originally intended to be consumed. So despite my general lack of experience with uh, Todd Haynes, I dived into this week with uh, an open mind and a, and a happy spirit, uh, eager to learn more. And what did you find this week? I found that he a filmmaker who's done a lot of interesting stuff and one that I'm still not that passionate about. Uh, similar. <laughs> and I think that while we talk about his movies, the question I want to keep asking is like, why? Why is this? Because he's seemingly doing something that is one of my favorite things, which is this kind of repackaging of stuff that the artist loves. Mm-hmm. The tone of his work um, is hard for me to put a finger on because he's somewhere between irony and sincerity. He's not Douglas Sirk. He's not John Waters either. I think at his best, the movies evoke these complicated emotions, like, for example, in a movie like Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, where it is a satire of sort of Nixonian pop culture and conservatism Mm -hmm. or what have you. And yet it's also very affectionate towards Karen Carpenter and her music. At its best, it, in, his work inspires complicated emotions like that. So for people that don't know, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, is the film that you always see on top 10 banned movies you could never see, even though you can just go to YouTube and you can watch it right now in a very crummy version. It has never been easier to see <laughs> than right now. And it's a film that's about an hour long. It was made as a, a thesis project um, by Todd Haynes for his filmmaking class that he was in at the time. Mm-hmm. And what it does is tell the Karen Carpenter story, which is about the singer for the Carpenters and her battle with anorexia. The Carpenters, quite beloved at the time for songs such as Why Do Birds Suddenly, Suddenly appear. appear? I'm sure you've heard it on The Simpsons. <laughs> or I've seen it in Something About Mary. Um, Right before he zips up his junk. And, you know, uh, the counterculture was happening at the time, but there were also uh, groups like the Carpenters who performed for the Nixon White House. And as I learned in this film, Nixon called the Carpenters the best of what America represents or something like that. (laughs) And we didn't point out that this film was all shot with Barbie dolls Mm -hmm. and they're not. Um, very mobile Barbie dolls that kind of move a little bit if they're talking, but they're mostly kind of static there. Yeah, what, their mouths the don't move like Conan O'Brien sketches, you know. <laughs> Actually, this is something Todd Haynes and I have in common because when I was, I think, five years old, I made a Batman film using only action figures. <laughs> uh, and, and I think a, a comparable level of artistic achievement. <laughs> I think that the thing that I dislike the most about this movie, which is very effective in what it's trying to do, which is 
giving you this very real story that had tragic results, but when you do it with Barbies, there's kind of a weird emotional connection because it's something that you recognize. You know, it's funny. I um, I felt a, an emotional connection to the film. Yeah, that's what and, I mean. And yet I, I'm not sure it was through the Barbies exactly. Mm. Like the Barbies are this distancing device. I frankly expected to be more distant from it than I was given the fact that it's Barbie dolls and and I think one reason why I avoided watching this movie for so long is it sounded a You're little... a G.I. Joe man. Yeah. Bar- Barbies are for girls. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it's because the the Barbies, it seemed a little snarky. It did, And yeah. knowing that the Carpenter family sued him and was so offended by it. I mean, I always sort of assumed this movie would probably be funny and, and interesting, but something about it always kind of rubbed me the wrong way, which is why I was surprised that I was emotionally affected by it. Well, it's very serious, and I think the performances are very good. And, mm-hmm. like, the way that he the tells vocal the story. Yeah, the vocal performance, not the Barbie dolls yeah. <laughs> And in some of the readings I've done about the film, it says that, like, something really moving about it is that the Barbies, especially Karen Carpenter, get, like, uglier as the movie goes along, and her anorexia is starting mm-hmm. to really chip away at her, which, unfortunately, I didn't really get watching the awful copy that's available on YouTube, because mm-hmm. you can essentially just make out bear shapes, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. The movie makes extensive use of the Carpenter's music, which and is... Probably the reason it got banned. Well, it is the reason it got banned. <laughs> and the fact that uh, Richard Carpenter is portrayed as a bully and also kind of in the closet. Yes. Also, there's a dream sequence Karen Carpenter has throughout of her being spanked by her father, which probably the Carpenter family didn't appreciate. But I think the Carpenter music is very effectively used. We hear several songs in their entirety, and you go into a movie like this expecting to kind of laugh at the carpenters mm-hmm. or be snarky at the carpenters and everything they represent but i mean the fact is she really is a good singer no matter what you think of these songs and haynes kind of invites you to appreciate the music for what it is mm-hmm. and i think that the one thing that kind of pushed me away from the film is that it does feel so much like a thesis film project mm-hmm. there's use of atrocity footage in the movie which is like ah, oh, come on that is such a young guy going like i really want to like shock my audience well it is it's that kind of uh, heavy-handed uh, mm-hmm. oh yeah the carpenters were were sickly sweet but beneath it there was a rot in america and it was happening in vietnam and uh, it's paralleled to the rot happening in this family that said the atrocity footage didn't bother me as much as it sometimes does mm-hmm. i think because the whole short has this sort of disquieting mood that it that it evokes. And yeah. The, I just think it's exploited. It is. Like, it is. I don't know if I can really defend my position on this, <laughs> yeah. but. And that's the one thing that bothered me, especially when essentially he is exploiting a real story, even though he's mm. telling it very seriously, mm. but by using it with Barbies, it's kind of like, it's not a smugness because it is, like you said, very serious and he actually cares about this stuff, but there's still that kind of like, he's smirk, above it too. Yeah, yeah. Is what you feel about it. So I don't know. I thought it was very interesting. And his second film, Poison from 1991 is kind of an extension of Superstar because he's telling three stories and he's using different styles to tell all these stories. Like one of them is like a seventies kind of talking heads documentary. Uh, like, the, a, like a 60 minutes kind of exactly. Thing, yeah. And the second one is like, kind of like a guy mad in pastiche, kind of like a, uh, in the penal colony kind of gay love story between prisoners. Mm -hmm. 
And the third one is like a 50s mad science, like black and white. You would see it on cable television on Sunday night movies. Right. In the documentary portion, it's about a boy who shoots his father and then ascends into heaven or something. Mm -hmm. He flies away and it's a bunch of interviews with all the family and friends that knew him who are uniformly not insightful about him. No. The horror film, the mad scientist film, the scientist has been able to isolate the elixir of human sexuality and so he drinks it and it turns him into a leper you Mm -hmm. know with with boils and pus coming out of his face and everything and then the the prison sequence is very sadomasochistic Mm -hmm. there's a scene where it's almost kind of like a gang rape where a bunch of guys surround someone and just start spitting on him and by all this talk of um, bodily fluids and sexuality, it's pretty obvious that even though it's not stated, the specter of AIDS haunts It's all about AIDS. That's what the movie's about. And I think you come to understand that all three stories are basically about the same guy. And they're all Mm cross-cut. Like, they're not one story, and then the second one, and then the third one. It's you just see, like, little slivers as the movie goes along. Mm -hmm. And this movie didn't do much for me. Yeah, Like, I understood what he was doing and those summaries we gave is essentially as most as you're going to get out of the movie well i mean i was definitely selling myself on it as i was talking about it i like the movie more than you did Mm -hmm. i don't feel much of an emotional connection to it i mean i i admire i i admire the film i admire its morbid sense of humor and Mm -hmm. it's sort of like especially the 50s like mad scientist one is pretty funny yeah you know there, there is a certain uh eroticism to it and you know Haynes as a filmmaker is I I say this a lot but he's very attuned to the sensual qualities of the medium Mm -hmm. you know uh, color and costumes and everything I'm not sure why I don't why I hold it at arm's length maybe it's because it's three separate stories without a real protagonist maybe it's because I'm not gay and and AIDS isn't a pressing concern for me I wonder if this is a movie that might um, become more moving to me in repeated viewings because it is a film that is I think, take some adjusting to. Yeah, I think that once you realize that this film is not going to give you any answers, mm-hmm. like it's essentially not building to anything, then you could take every scene by scene mm-hmm. and enjoy the sight of, hey, look, that's John Leguizamo in the gay prison scene. Well, any movie that has John Leguizamo and it gets an instant thumbs up. <laughs> the past himself. This was, I think, Todd Haynes' breakthrough movie and maybe the defining film of the so-called new queer cinema from the early 90s. A movement I can barely comment on. God, I, you know what? I tore apart my apartment this morning trying to find my copy of B. Ruby Rich's The New Queer Cinema. Yeah. Couldn't find it. <laughs> I have no idea where I put it. So, sorry, no insight for me. But, you know, they were films that came out. I, I, what I can tell you that I know is that they came out of the late Reagan, mm-hmm. George H.W bush era when the federal government did so little to respond to the aids crisis and so there was this feeling of you know not only was there this epidemic that was wiping out so much of the gay community but this feeling that they you know their own government wanted them to die and that's how these films came about and i got a chance to read um shooting to kill which is a kind of how-to book on making movies independently in the 90s written by christine uh vachon and the reason that i pulled it out was because she is todd haynes's producer she basically produced every film from poison onward mm-hmm. and she actually says that one of the reasons that poison made such a big mark 
is that it got out that it uh, was made using government funds and like a Christian conservative group like made a huge stink about it, which boosted its box office to record levels. Yeah, yeah. The National Endowment for the Arts, I believe. Yes. Now you watched his next film, which was uh, also quite successful, Safe, Mm -hmm. with Julianne Moore. And it's absolutely the one that I like the most out of all the Todd Haynes films that I saw. It's him in a serious mode. There's none of that ironic distancing Mm -hmm. that like his future and past films kind of utilize, which is it's about Julianne Moore, who's a rich suburban housewife, doesn't have anything really going on in her life. And she suddenly starts to feel sick. Mm-hmm. And she believes that it's the environment that's doing it to her. And it's just an escalation shot in like a Kubrickian, very straight aheadness using the environment and sound effects to create an idea of mood until the point where she joins a cult and she's brainwashed and she's essentially isolated completely from everything and then the movie ends. It's another film that it's just like the journey that you're taking with this character is what's moving about it. It's one that I avoided for a long time because it had this body horror element that I was like, I don't want to watch this. <laughs> like, it sounds just miserable. But it's Julianne's performance and the way that Todd Haynes kind of captures it, which is very compelling and moving. And it's one of those films that you can read in as much as you want into it. Because while it's probably a psycho psychosomatic uh, reaction because nothing is going on in her life, it's also about so much more, mm-hmm. especially when it gets into the cult portion and you see how people can exploit individuals who just want an answer to mm-hmm. their problems and how it can just make it worse as it goes along. Mm-hmm. So safe. Well, we both watched Velvet Goldmine, his 1998 poison pen letter to David Bowie. <laughs> Which, as you said... Uh, was his retaliation for Bowie betraying him. It's not just about Bowie, though. It's also about the whole glam rock era. Iggy Pop, played by Ewan McGregor. It's about Iggy Pop, too. But it's about the glam rock era and what it meant to, I guess, uh, queer youth at Mm -hmm. the time. Jonathan Reese Myers from Matchpoint stars... (laughs) And Hellboy. Hellboy (laughs) stars as uh, Brian Slade, a um, identity-shifting, androgynous, bisexual... British pop star and Christian Bale stars as a young uh, gay teenager who uh, comes to love him. But Brian Slade, his career ends abruptly when he when he fakes his own death on stage. And then Christian Bale goes out, you know, like William Allen in Citizen Kane to find out what happened to him. And eventually, spoiler, finds out that he's reinvented himself in a totally new identity as a conformist, heterosexual Reagan era pop star. <laughs> it's a movie that I could understand why I would have enjoyed it as a teenager but didn't actually kind of watch it over and Mm -hmm. over again like I did with the movies that I love which is that it's so in love with this world of like glam rock and all this stuff but it doesn't really have anywhere to go by the end of the movie like if you love this stuff I can understand why you'd go like this is my favorite movie of all time and I like this stuff like the music is fun the looks are great if you like Jonathan Reese Myers wearing a a lot of glitter and looking pouty but at the end of the day like it's a film that I feel is a little bit formless like the idea Mm -hmm. of delivering and showing all this stuff is really the reason that exists because emotionally it didn't hit me in any way either and this again maybe if i'd had a a youthful experience Mm -hmm. similar to todd haynes as i would have felt an emotional connection to the film frankly 
my first reaction to the film is that I think it's a little unfair to David Bowie. <laughs> yeah, this is a film that supposedly the script was sent to David Bowie and it was so close to his life that he went, I'm going to sue you if you make this movie. So they actually had to rewrite it. Well, the movie basically takes Angela Bowie's side and it sort of suggests that Bowie himself was just this kind of opportunist and this uh, con artist. I think... Uh, Haynes was probably very felt very betrayed, as did a lot of people by after Bowie spent so much time saying that he was bisexual when he eventually said, "Ah, I'm not really bisexual. You know, I tried it, didn't like it. Mm -hmm. And then the whole Let's Dance era. I don't want to stand up for David Bowie too much. I mean, I think he 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 turned out all right. Yeah, I was interested in the idea that Bowie is sort of part of this continuum of queer culture like Haynes is clearly quite well read and he's quite erudite so this movie sort of puts him in conversation with like Oscar Wilde and Jean Genet which I guess makes the betrayal all the more acute for Mm -hmm. for Haynes. Uh, It's obvious that the Christian Bale character is the Haynes surrogate. Mm -hmm. There's a scene where uh, Christian Bale is watching the David Bowie-like character on TV, and it just cuts to him pointing to it and going, that's me, that's me! (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. And that's the level of obsession you can tell that Todd Haynes has with this subject matter. But I just wish I cared more. You know, it's funny. When I was when I was getting into David Bowie when I was in high school... Were you like him? You're like, ah, David Bowie sold out. Yeah, you know, quite the opposite. I mean, the... <laughs> You're like, I prefer the Let's Dance era. The, uh, the queer dimension of David Bowie meant almost nothing to me. Mm-hmm. Which... I mean, it can't mean something to me or yeah. you, right? Like, we got all of our, like, straight white rockers. The who, I guess? The, the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're represented by all these people. Yeah. While, like, someone that was in the mainstream, like David Bowie, was... I don't know anybody else off the top of my well, head. Well, you know, it's funny. Like, I knew that he claimed to be bisexual, and I guess I knew there was something camp about mm-hmm. all the stuff he was doing, you know, in the Ziggy Stardust era. But it just sort of had, had no... Like, when he died and everyone was saying like oh he taught me uh it was okay to be weird i found that very moving but Mm -hmm. it's you know i i feel like i related to him almost entirely just for the music yeah it sounded cool it was rocking like ziggy stardust my dad had that cd and i played it over and over and over again my dad had that had ziggy stardust too and i think the fact that both our dads had it really speaks to like (laughs) normcore well i don't know it's like kind of how incredible it was that something that queer was able to penetrate culture and it just like didn't bother them they could just enjoy the music as the music and be like ah he's weird not understanding what it actually meant to people who didn't have that kind of representation yeah so i guess my experience you know it sounded ridiculous when i was saying it but i guess my experience was very common yeah uh so moving on probably todd haynes's i don't want to say biggest like mainstream hit but i remember his film far from heaven was like everywhere when it came out it was a film that kind of was in the mainstream in a way that like his films haven't been until Carol, I would say. Yeah. And this was a, like, big-budget recreation of Douglas Sirk films, these kind of colorful melodramas that would deal with difficult topics. But, you know, Todd Haynes was making it for uh, the now. So all the things that Douglas Sirk could only hint at, Mm -hmm. uh, Todd Haynes will actually say. But he won't show in a way that's, like... Too unsettling. You're not going to see hardcore gay sex. You're not going to see a bunch of guys standing around spitting on another guy, Mm -hmm. covering him in phlegm. It's a film (laughs) that, like, I could easily show this to my mom, and she would have no problem with it. Yeah, there's nothing particularly radical about it. It's a film that, as it was playing, I kept asking myself, why did Todd Haynes make this movie? (laughs) Because it's 
technically amazing looking. It's beautiful. It looks like Dick Tracy. Yeah, the way that he uses <laughs> colors. If you watch any Douglas Sirk films, they kind of look like that, though. Yeah. Like Douglas Sirk would put, like, just a green light over mm. something that's completely expressionist, but the emotion is so, like, right there. Mm. In this Todd Haynes picture, Far From Heaven, uh, you have Julianne Moore giving a great performance and Dennis Quaid playing her gay husband who's trying to fight with his feelings. And Dennis Haysbert as their black gardener who she comes to fall in love with and he's very good very understated but i think that the movie is just so normal that i didn't understand why you would make this movie and it's a period film as well you know when you take the subtext and make it text Mm -hmm. it almost it seems less like douglas sirk than stanley kramer (laughs) and it's and it's a film that i'm like why would I watch this if I have the originals? Yeah. And, you know, it, it may be unfair because I'm like, give me kung fu film. That's all I want. <laughs> I just want kung fu films. Oh, it's like that one. Yeah, I love it. And it, it may be unfair for me to be like, oh, but I don't want this Douglas Sirk stuff. I already have other Douglas Sirk stuff. Well, I liked Far From Heaven. Yeah, it's fine. To a degree. I Three stars. Yeah, three stars. I found myself uh, engrossed in it and I thought the ending the the kind of melancholy ending was quite powerful mm. i have to say and maybe our reaction is just more to the fact that it was embraced as a masterpiece when it came out it was, was it? on so many top 10 wow lists. you know uh, the dvd i picked up at bmv for two dollars said you know over over 100 four-star raved reviews or something and you know it's not as good as the Douglas Sirk movies. It's that, not even as good as like the Fassbender movies who yeah. did the exact same thing, but were genuinely transgressive yeah. with this Douglas Sirk material. That said, I don't begrudge Todd Haynes for wanting to make kind of a Douglas Sirk fan film. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah. In the studio and using a bunch of money to make it. Like, yeah. and there's something to be awarded for that. Like, yeah. Oh, I finally a, got to recreate the stuff I love. Yeah, and it's a pleasant, engrossing story, mm. and uh, it packs a bit of an emotional punch at the end. So yeah, three stars. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not there. His movie about Bob Dylan. This is a movie that was made for Will Sloan, wasn't it? I know the first time I saw it, when I was kind of getting into Bob Dylan, I found it baffling. And then when I saw it a few years later, knowing more about him, I loved it. Oh, did you? Yeah. This is a movie that I have almost no emotional connection for. This is like... The Todd Haynes episode. We don't really get it. (laughs) I mean, you know, I like I'm Not There strictly as kind of like, you know, a spot the reference movie. (laughs) Really? You know. It's like two and a half hours, so. Yeah, but so much much good Bob Dylan music. You got Kate Blanchett in there playing Mm -hmm. Bob. I guess that's where, you know, I was wondering where the queer aspect of it was, but I guess that's maybe where it is. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I haven't seen it recently enough, though, to do a... Me uh, neither. ...a comprehensive critique. But, you know, Carol was a huge critical success a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel about it the same way we feel about Far From Heaven. It's fine. It sort of did everything I expected it to do. Yep. I, I didn't have the strong emotional connection that a lot of people did. Like Far From Heaven, Carol, even Velvet Goldmine to a degree, they're movies where they do sort of exactly what I expected they would do. And his film after that, Wonderstruck, which came out and kind of disappeared... I really liked, actually. It was the first film that I watched in my Todd Haynes marathon, and it's doing something so fascinating, was telling this very slight story, but wrapping it in a love of everything that I like and you like, too. I'm kind of bummed you didn't see Wonderstruck, because it's about a kid that goes to 70s uh, New York, which is intercut with a 
a black and white silent movie about a deaf girl who's obsessed with an actress in silent films played by Julianne Moore who goes to like I think 20s or 30s New York to find her oh wow and these two stories oh like Louise Brooks exactly yeah and these two stories kind of mixing together and the thing about Wonderstruck is kind of like in sums up Todd Haynes as a whole which is like the ending is kind of like oh that's it like that's what you're building to but everything is so visually sumptuous and there's so many kind of like subtextual messages that he's getting in there that it's about the journey not the destination and I think that if you realize that about Todd Haynes if I rewatched the movies again, I would probably take more out of them because he is always asking these questions and kind of hinting at these great answers. And when he doesn't deliver them, it's kind of like, oh, okay, I guess that's what it is. Uh, my big takeaway from him is that tone. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I don't quite get it. But, yes. it, but it, but it's interesting. It may not be for me and you. Yeah. But I can understand someone <laughs> loving his work as a whole. What I will say is that after this week, I'm more interested in Todd Haynes than I was. And I will, the next time he has something out, I'll go see it. Well, you should see Wonderstruck. I actually, you've sold me on it. Yeah, it has, it's it all Will Sloan stuff right. that you love. So, letters. You can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And the first one is from William Walker. He goes, Hello, Will and Justin. Just writing in quick to ask whether you'd consider doing more shows on transgressive films and genres. I know you did a Joe D'Amato episode recently, but I have in mind some others like Nazi exploitation or the work of Jorg. I can't say his last name. It's the director of... Um, the necro... Oh, necromantic? Necromantic, yeah. one and two. And he did a more, like, kind of, like, gross, kind of 70-minute German mm-hmm. um, gore films. Mm-hmm. I am always interested in listening to you cover films I do not necessarily have the stomach for, like the Mondo movies, and living vicariously through your experiences. <laughs> yeah, but we gotta watch these movies! I mean, I'm more interested in this stuff, I think, Keep up Justin the good is. work, William. Yeah. <laughs> You are. Yeah. Uh, they're movies that, like, I haven't watched them for a reason. And stuff like Nazi exploitation is something that, like, I don't really like. So what you've got to understand is, like, once every 20 episodes, I can sell Justin on Joe D'Amato or... <laughs> oh, you don't have to sell me on Joe D'Amato. Okay. Uh, I could sell you on Mondo movies. Yes. Uh, uh, I don't think you'll sell me on Nazi exploitation, though. Oh, come on. <laughs> like, Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS. Like, we have to watch all of them. We also have to watch, like, what is it? The Beast or whatever? The one about, like, the hairy guy in the cage? Yeah. Man, I would do a Nazi exploitation episode in a second. But... Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a Patreon on Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS. You know what? I'd be willing to do that. All right. And as far as the di- director of Necromantic, I don't know if there's that much there, but using him as a springboard to talk about like banned movies and stuff like that and what they meant, I think that would be interesting. And it's probably something that we would do on Patreon. You know, something that I would be interested in talking about that I know Justin would hate is the cinema of transgression, like our, our Richard Kern or Nick said. Yeah, you love that stuff. <laughs> um, you know, every 20 episodes, it's okay. like a Make-A-Wish Foundation. Like okay. you, get to, you get to sneak in. Stay tuned. Uh, this next letter is from Chris Berube, and it goes, ah, Chris. Reynolds, up close. Also, thanks for the the letter, William. Uh, sorry, we just jumped into the next one. Hey, team. I just listened to your Patreon episode about Burt Reynolds and wanted to share an experience I just had. <laughs> a few weeks back, I saw Reynolds give a Q&A after a screening of Deliverance. Oh, man. He was at the Metrograph. Yeah. Oh. It was bananas. Here are some of the things that happened. 
Reynolds was escorted by an assistant wearing a cowboy hat and fringe jacket. <laughs> that person appeared to be his valet. At one point, he was asked about working with Frank Sinatra. Reynolds responded, oh, Frank was nice. Actually, I had my own rat pack. When pressed, he said the members of the, his rat pack were Dom DeLuise, Charles Nelson Riley, and Sally Field. <laughs> they also hurt. included Andy Sedaris, the uh, director of such hits as... Man, uh, I can't even remember. Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, I recently read an interview with Andy Sedaris, and he said that he and Burt Reynolds were friends for like a decade oh, before nice. Burt Reynolds became a star. Uh, anyway, that was Justin talking. Uh, when asked, <laughs> well, you to know the difference between me and you? Well, like, oh, it would be yes. weird if Chris just went into a weird like <laughs> tangent about Andy Sedaris. Yeah, I got to put my letter reading voice on. Uh, when asked about punching Paul Thomas Anderson, he became visibly upset and eventually replied with no comment. <laughs> At one point, he called his own movie, Navajo Joe, the worst picture ever made. He also said Deliverance was a great family movie and educational. Uh, I gotta stop you there, Bert. Navajo Joe, the Sergio Cobrucci Western, while very politically incorrect, is actually a lot of fun. Mm. Cobrucci's a great filmmaker. I just saw The Great Silence yesterday Mm -hmm. for the first time. Great movie. Great film. He cried twice, once when talking about how much he liked Dunkirk. (laughs) (laughs) And the second time when describing a horse he saw 30 years ago. (laughs) It was magical. Just thought you guys could appreciate the rundown, Chris. Thank you. I don't really have anything else to say. That that actually sounds exactly like the last movie star. It does. (laughs) Uh, this next letter is from another William, William Pond. It's about film websites. Hey guys, I just enjoyed hearing about the film websites you used to frequent, pretty much none of which I had heard of, apart from Ain't It Cool News, but that Knowles guys used to give me the creeps, as he should have. Yeah, bad man. Um, I'm shocked you haven't heard of zombiekeeper.com. <laughs> Talking about film sites, which websites do you guys visit now? I would be really interested in hearing your recommendation. Thanks, Will. You know, I visit fewer websites than Me I too. regularly than I used to because, you know, for the most part, the film websites these days, you know, anything that was kind of good, like the Dissolve. Uh, just go back and pretend that there's new posts every day. You know, it was beautiful. Or, you know, the AV Club back in the day was, Rest in peace. was, was great. But now it's all turned into like birth movies, death kind of mm-hmm. clickbait stuff. I probably listen to podcasts more than I go to when I frequent websites. I still visit Birth Movies Desk because you get new stuff, but that kind of feeling when you're reading websites and it ends with like, what do you think? Tell me in the uh, comments. It's like, ugh. Yeah. I was always more interested in like film websites if there was an opinion attached to the kind of news item. And unfortunately, you can't really do that anymore because people just stop reading websites completely. So it's just bland kind of like comingsoon.net. This is the news. And that's it. Yeah. I mean, frankly, the stuff that I I probably seriously read rather than just like news stuff, but seriously read like film magazines now more than I do mm-hmm. websites. You like film comment. And I know you read Sight and Sound. Yeah. And, and Cinemascope. Cinemascope. Yeah. Actually, how could I forget the one movie review website that every time it pops into my feed, I'm like, ah, yes. And you're a fan too, Will. That's Vern. Oh, yeah. Vern's good. Yeah. yeah. Vern, Vern's good. And like... What's his website? I think it's like Out, the, Outlaw Vern. Yeah, the yeah. Outlaw Vern. And what's great about him is that he has a very matter of fact way of talking about movies and that he'll do like a bunch of Francois Truffaut films mm-hmm. and he'll do a bunch of Steven Seagal pictures. Oh, I like Reverse Shot too. Oh, yeah. Reverse yeah. Shot is good too. Yeah. Thanks for your letter, William. And last but not least, the letter is from Sean Glynis. It goes, hey guys. 
found the pod not long ago and have been catching up from the beginning, really enjoying it. It's nice to be able to revisit some discussions of classic cinema and the canon that I learned about discovered in college from a modern perspective, as opposed to the pedantic and sometimes condescending film professors. Ah, we could bring up the old chestnut. It's two blue collar guys That's talking right. about movies. We're just two dummies and we're at your level, folks. <laughs> you know, uh, I got to agree, though, that one of the reasons that I wanted to do this podcast is the way that a lot of academics talk about movies is very kind of you know, distancing because it's not about making you want to watch these movies or making them look interesting or talking about them in a way that kind of breaks them down in a fashion that's approachable. It's about, you know, facts and references and it's just dry kind of unreadable text you know it's funny when i think about back on why i wanted to do the, to do this podcast i don't think jerry it, lewis i don't think there ever was a reason i think it's just i was doing it one day and then all of a sudden <laughs> it was my life <laughs> it was all because i'm like will knows about movies i mean i've said this before but one of the reasons that i want to do it with will is because i thought he was very knowledgeable about like jean-luc godard and stuff like that <laughs> and what i discovered is he's just like i just want to talk about joe d'amato <laughs> <laughs> One Opposites the- attract, you know. You want to talk about Godard, I want to talk about Joe D'Amato. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Nazi exploitation. Yeah. François Truffaut. Yeah. Uh, the letter continues. One of the things that Pod has really ignited in me is reading more nonfiction about film, whether it be theory, history, or just biographies. My first cue is, how do you guys find so much time to read, watch so much stuff? It's quite admirable. Well, for me, you just don't have a life. <laughs> I mean, what you've got to understand is, like, we've been spending literally a lifetime on this stuff yeah like a lot of the stuff we talk about that we like we might have read 15 years ago Mm -hmm. um it is hard to find time frankly yeah i I mean when i'm currently jobless so perfect time to donate to our patreon (laughs) but uh when i would work like full time i would read on the subway read going back home like you just find pockets here or there if you have a loved one you can watch movies with them Uh, it's not that hard it's just that we live in a world where there's so many distracting things like I was recently timing me recently, again, because I'm jobless and I have to structure my days. And it's crazy how long I can talk to someone on Facebook about nothing oh, yeah. and like an hour just goes by. <laughs> like, yeah. I could have been reading a book or watching a movie or doing something constructive. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> Second cue is related. I get a lot of recommendations of what to read from your discussions, but can you guys foreground some recommendations of books sometimes, even if only on Patreon episodes? Well... There's a little website called filmtrap.com that you should be visiting every week because I've actually started to do a kind of like book club column where I'll just take a movie related book and I'll just write a review about it. And I'm encouraging people, which has not happened yet, to like comment on it, which is understandable because you cannot read at the speed that I'm reading a book. All right, I'll comment on it. Fine, (laughs) fine. We also did do an episode on uh, favorite film books. Yeah, and uh, we can revisit that because I'm sure there's more that we could discuss as we go along. We just did a Patreon episode about the greatest film book of all, Leonard Malton's Movie Guide. (laughs) Which I think that week was maybe the week where we received the least new Patreon subscribers. (laughs) (laughs) Which really shows how much of an impact Leonard Malton has on uh, pop culture right now. Third and final cue, this letter goes, do you have any plans to do an Almodovar pod? I would love to hear that. Thanks, guys. Sean. Sure, but we just did Todd Haynes, for God's sake. (laughs) And... (laughs) As we've talked about a little before, 
Amadovar's one we're definitely going to sweat on and we're going to have to like do our work and research. Amadovar has gotten like less interesting to me over mm. the years. Like I think the last decade of his career I haven't really been on board with. But he had such like a hot streak for so long oh, that yeah. there's like a lot to talk about mm-hmm. in those movies. As you mentioned our Patreon this week we did an episode on our favorite films about filmmaking and there's a lot in there that you've probably never heard of before so mm. you should check that out. You know uh, when Francois Truffaut made Day for Night <laughs> Jean-Luc Godard sent him that famous letter where he said, you know, if if this were really honest about filmmaking, you would include how you fucked the leading lady. <laughs> He, he didn't quite put it that elegantly. Um, Truffaut was famous for uh, screwing every woman that he ever met. He even made a movie about it called The Man Who Loved Women, which was remade by Blake Edwards, starring Burt Reynolds. Nice. So that's the uh, connection right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's $5 a month for our Patreon. You get a new episode every week. You also get post-film discussions, which are little 10-minute uh, bits. There's only four episodes up at one time, and then they disappear if you miss them. So get it now. And also... You got to listen to the commentary me and Will did for Detour. Uh, We finally sat down and recorded it all. And if you're a Patreon subscriber, I actually synced up our commentary with the movie. Mm -hmm. So you can hear Will go, ah, look at that shot with the chairs. And actually be looking at that shot with the chairs. (laughs) So uh, yeah, become a Patreon subscriber now and get all that cool stuff. Next week... We're going to be doing Paul Schrader. Because he's got a brand new film out, First Reformed. A filmmaker that when we started this podcast, I believe you went, ugh, I don't want to do a Paul Schrader episode. But time has changed you, right? This really shows how, yeah, yeah, how much two and a half years can change a person. (laughs) Just beat you down. Now I love Paul Schrader. (laughs) Yeah. And so we're going to be talking about First Reformed, his new film, which unfortunately Mm -hmm. you can't watch right now. But we'll also be probably honing in, and I think The Canyons... Yeah, the canyons. Which was kind of like his attempt at revitalizing his career. They know what the canyons is. <laughs> Do they? I've never seen it. But it, you've never seen it? No, I've oh, never wow. seen it. Um, and, I don't know, Mishima? Yeah, uh, Mishima, that's right. Uh, Life in Four Chapters. Which I've never seen. Which is probably, I would say, his most kind of like critically lauded film. Mm-hmm. But he's made so many interesting and frankly great movies. Like Blue Collar is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I have a soft spot for the youthful energy of hardcore because it's so <laughs> crazy. Uh, good movie. Mm, you know what? We'll talk about it on the episode. Good Blu-ray commentary. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh. What the fuck was I thinking when I made this? There's a great interview with Paul Schrader in Cinemascope about First Reform and the way that he kind of approaches films. And it kind of made me a little bit more uh, soft on his recent pictures that I really didn't like. Well, First Reformed, it's like everything was building up to this. Yes. Yeah. And there's also a not very insightful, but just fun interview between Paul Schrader and Nicolas Cage that appeared in Interview Magazine, Mm -hmm. which you can read online. So you should check that one out Mm -hmm. as well. And until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So me and Will just spent a few minutes staring at my DVD collection, wondering, what should we talk about next? <laughs> and I noticed that I have two copies of Alone in the Dark, the Uvi Bull Christian Slater blockbuster, the theatrical version, and the director's cut. Oh, nice. And it made me wonder, why do I own these? I also own Alone in the Dark because I, I bought it for a dollar on Amazon, thinking I might listen to the commentary track at some point. I think that I'm the one who influenced you to do that, you right? You were. I got that and Blood Rain, also a dollar. <laughs> but you know what? 
Life is short. <laughs> so Uwe Boll was considered the world's worst filmmaker while he was working. Well, a lot of that was just like video game nerds mm-hmm. who were upset that he made bad movies about their video games. I remember when House of the Dead came out. I never saw it through at- theatrically, but a friend of mine did. And when the credits came up, someone in the audience went, boo. <laughs> which... well, the reception around Alone in the Dark was apocalyptic almost. <laughs> like you... it was laughed off the screen, I remember. Have you seen Alone in the Dark? Yes, I have. It is a film that can only be be made by someone who doesn't understand how movies work it's also a movie like you know even coming out in 2006 a tara reed christian slater stephen dorff movie was just an absolutely baffling proposition do you remember when like a trailer leak that had like a bunch of scenes from the movie in it including <laughs> the scene where stephen dorff does like an underhanded knife throw that just stabs a guy he's like Ooh! every now and then a movie comes out and you think there's got to be some other reason this movie is out. Is it a tax reason? Is it a contractual obligation? Well, supposedly, Uwe Boll, one of the reasons that he was able to make so many films is that there was like a tax loophole yeah. in Germany that allowed him to make all of these movies. And it's like the producers, where if it lost money, yeah. they would It's like the it tax off. shelter era yeah. kind of thing. And like before he even made House of the Dead, he made a bunch of movies, including what, Heart of America. It was like a Clint Howard starring... Starring Elizabeth Moss, I believe it was a school shooting film, a school right? school shooting film that the cover had a quote from Ron Howard, which is like, this is a pretty good movie or something like that. Well, there's of al- course he would say that about his brother's There's film. also a quote from Ron Howard on the cover of Uwe Boll's Attack on Darfur, which also has Clint Howard. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. That's, I love that idea that like Ron Howard sitting there watching Blubberella or whatever because <laughs> Clint Howard is in it. And he's like, oh, God. A few years ago, a friend and I did an Uwe Boll social issues double feature <laughs> where we watched Assault on Wall Street and we watched Auschwitz. Um, They're I- so boring. That's yeah. like the worst like seeing his films commit. I mean what we should have done is put Blubberella in there mm. you know to, to well, liven it up the story about Blubberella in Auschwitz goes that he got funding for Blood Rain 3 mm. which the Blood Rain series is really funny because it's based on a video game that's about this like scantily clad vampire who kills Nazis mm. and they didn't get to that premise until the third movie <laughs> which I have seen by the way I've seen Blood Rain 3 and so they finally made it and Uwe Boll used the sets that they built to shoot Auschwitz and Blubberella <laughs> at the same time, which is why Clint Howard is in all of them. Real Roger Corman. Well, he's not in Auschwitz. That would be really ridiculous <laughs> if he was, because that was Uwe Boll trying to do a totally realistic um, Holocaust movie, you know, with, with none of the Spielbergian frills. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, would say, why should we take Uwe Boll at his word? Is he really just being exploitative? And there are no easy answers to that question. Uwe Boll, though, is interesting because he's he, for, during his career, he was constantly trying to do different stuff. Like there's something about a hackmeister who just makes the same bad movie over and over mm-hmm. and over again. But like Uwe Boll would try to make like a serious prison drama that he improvised about kind of sexual assault starring Edward Furlong. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what its title was. And you know, I've, I have listened to his commentary on Assault on Wall Street. He is insane. Well, it's just him ranting. Like he's he's a real dirtbag leftist, you mm-hmm. know. It's, it's him ranting about how horrible it was that that uh you know the bankers got away with this and how this movie is his revenge and hey maybe somebody should shoot up the bankers and Uwe Boll is also a filmmaker that may be one of the first ones who kind of was fueled by internet hate about him yeah. at the time I remember when he was making Blood Rain in those films which were shaky kind of Bulgarian shot pictures that were still released in like theaters everywhere yeah is that like he would argue with people on MSN. And I remember on a message board I was on, someone was like, Uwe Boll is on sets of Blood Rain and he seems to be spending 
all the time just like yelling at me over chat as opposed to making the movie. Well, we all remember when he fought those internet critics. Raging Bull, one of the most uncomfortable documentaries you can see. And on the one hand, it was kind of funny. Yes. I mean, it's funny that those, that those dweebs got punched in the face. But on the other hand... I don't think it did Uwe Boll any favors Mm-mm. in the long run. Well, he it just <sighs> brought him and his friend Michael Pere closer. Because <laughs> there's a great scene in that documentary where Uwe Boll is talking to Michael Pere, and Pere is kind of like, you know, getting him up, ready to fight, but, to beat up like a 15-year-old boy. But Boll is clearly more intelligent than his films are. <laughs> Well, I don't know. It's like, I don't want to overstate it. Uh, he's he's clearly got some ambition, but he there's a an anger and a sourness and a mean-spiritedness to him. And I think it manifests itself in his films, too. Mm-hmm. A movie like Postal is really quite ugly. And, and You remember how big of a stink they were trying to make at the time of like, Postal's going to blow your mind. This is crazy. They were trying to do like a South Park thing with yeah. it. Like, oh, it's an equal opportunity, politically The incorrect. film is painfully unfunny. Yeah. Well, it's got one funny scene. What's that? The opening scene. Oh, yeah, that's right. It does. <laughs> Which you're going to have to watch to uh, discover for yourself. But the rest of it is really tedious. I just think that Uvi Bull was probably just a very charismatic person, which is why he kept being able to make these movies. Over. Like, he made, like, a big budget version of the forgettable Diablo ripoff in the name of the king, starring, like, Jason Statham, Burt Reynolds, mm-hmm. all people that he said he got in his movies because there would be a hole in their schedules mm-hmm. and they were paying enough that they could put them in it. And that film, like a lot of Uvi Bull, films at the time was edited by David Richardson, the editor who did all of Johnny Toe's classic films. Mm-hmm. It was choreographed by Chin Su Tung, the director of A Chinese Ghost Story. <laughs> so there's like attempts made there, even though that the end result is disappointing and not fun. But I also think he was probably just a guy who like, um, probably was profitable when he mm-hmm. needed to be like a lot most of his movies were just low budget movies that if they were pre-sold to cable and dvd and streaming platforms probably turned a profit before he even made them films like attack on darfur from 2009 that, that was one of his one for me movies <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm surprised you didn't see that one considering it stars so many um superstars like billy zane yeah billy <laughs> Edward zane. Furlong. christina Locken was she <laughs> that's in right it? yeah probably she, she's his uh marlena dietrich so, you know, there's something kind of um, inspiring by the fact that he did keep trying, even though they were just horrible failures that but were not what's good. What's not inspiring is like how upset and angry he always is. Uh, it's just been chipped away, I feel like. There must have been this feeling that like, oh, well, he was going to show people like he was going to show that he's actually good and they don't understand. And when that didn't happen, he turned into like the worst troll imaginable. It's like me. Yeah. (laughs) This podcast is just chipping away at you. Yeah. People will understand what a genius I am eventually. Right, right, right. Right. Uh, well, actually, maybe these people are are, are, not, are not geniuses. Maybe they are uh, full of shit and, and, and they are assholes. Well, I mean, Bull supposedly just quit filmmaking and now he runs a successful German-themed restaurant in Vancouver. Good for him. <laughs>